The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast with your co-host, Rafael Testai. Today, I got a very special guest, Sean McElligott. He's the section head of medical device research and development at none other than the Mayo Clinic. So he does, uh, the, he's a quality manager. Uh, he has a second line managerial responsibility for the applied computational engineering unit, the biomechanical development unit, and the biomechanical shop. He's the director of the Mayo Clinic Division of Engineering Additive Manufacturing Facility and oversees the Division of Engineering Microfabrication Facility. He has a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Stanford University and a master's of healthcare administration from the University of Minnesota. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks. Uh, so we first heard about you in an article in the magazine Machine Design Magazine. And the article is titled, How Do Me- Medical Organizations Use Additive Manufacturing? And the link is in the show notes for our listeners. But many of our listeners are driving right now and they can't read the article. So would you mind maybe summarizing what the article is about? Um. I guess I can't I, I can't necessarily summarize that particular article because I don't have it top of mind, but um, I will say that uh, you know different uh, uh, medical institutions use uh, uh, additive manufacturing differently. Um, if you look at uh, uh, the Veterans Affairs Administration uh, with Dr. Beth Ripley uh, leading their 3D printing effort, um, they are doing completely different things than the Mayo Clinic Division of Engineering uh, does. But uh, so they're doing, uh, um, you know, some of them are the same and, and some are different. Um, I'm personally within the Mayo Clinic Division of Engineering, so we are doing uh, medical device development and instrument uh, design and uh, laboratory. Uh, instruments uh, as well, and so we're using it for uh, uh, prototyping, for uh, you know, show and tell prototypes, functional prototypes, for uh, working parts as well, and uh, so the full full gamut there. Um, where we have another uh, partner organization over in the Department of Radiology that is using 3D printing to do uh, pre-surgical to print th- pre-surgical planning models for surgeons to see the anatomy before they do surgery. That's uh, really taking the country by storm and is probably the the prime premier primary uh, use of 3D printing in hospitals. Can I? Uh, I want to ask you something. So you mentioned that. Other hospitals, uh, not not the Mayo Clinic, are primarily using 3D printing to print the patient's anatomy. Is that right? Yes, that that's becoming more and more common. The Radiological Society of North America has a special interest group on 3D printing, and so it's mostly practicing radiologists that are involved in running the the 3D printing labs, um, or biomedical engineers that are associated with them. And uh, I. Don't know their exact membership, but there are are 
probably hundreds of people now involved in 3D printing in hospitals, primarily for uh, looking at the patient anatomy. So radiologists can see the images. You know, they're they're trained, they're 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 wired to be able to look at a flat screen and and see anatomy. Surgeons less so. Surgeons uh, uh, tend to be very tactile and very three dimensional, and so um, it. We, we in Mayo Clinic Division of Engineering got started in 3D printing when a surgeon, a pediatric surgeon, went to a radiologist and said, I can't see this and uh, you have to get me a physical model. And so the radiologist, uh, Dr. Jane Matsumoto, came to Division of Engineering, among others, and uh, came up with the first uh, uh, 3D models that were used uh, significantly within Mayo Clinic. And uh, it was for a, a pair of conjoined twins uh, that they were doing a separation surgery. And it's very important that they figure out the, the, the twins shared a liver. It was very important that they figure out where to cut that liver to make sure that each twin got their share of the liver. Um, ultimately, they, they, they said that the, the 3D printed models were perfect. They showed them exactly where to cut. They, they actually, one of the surgeons took a Sharpie out and marked on the model, this is where we're going to cut. We pulled, when he opened up the, the patients, uh, that was, you know, the liver was as it appeared and he cut it where he had planned to and, and uh, uh, was, that was back in 2006 and the, the patients are, are still alive and, and doing well. And so it was a, a phenomenal success and that was our, uh, our entry into 3D printing at Mayo Clinic. Wow. What a beautifully told story. And so many threads of conversation just opened up. I was going to ask you, let's see. Well, what comes to mind is how do you gather the scan data? What, what do you use for that? The scan data typically comes from a CT scanner um, or an MRI. Um, the easiest to do is bone. It's it's easiest to get the to recognize the the contrast difference between the the bone and the soft tissue. But uh, uh, soft tissue um, uh, anatomy can also be imaged. Um, and so there is uh, there are open source and and a variety of different software packages out there that take the uh, the the imaging output, typically a uh, the, the format file format is DICOM. Uh, take a, a DICOM file of slices of, of CT scan um, and then assemble them into a, a whole segment out the, uh, the anatomy from that that um, data, and then it. Uh, it basically gets turned into a shell. You can then, you know, turn it into a C, uh, an STL file from the uh, from the output from the software. Okay. And then my follow up question was, I could I've never seen maybe an organ of a human being in person, but from what I gather is somewhere of a visco viscosity, like organs inside your stomach and your body can move around a little bit if you suck in your stomach, etc. if you twist your abdomen, if you're exercising. So when you tell me that the, the insides, uh, the liver was 3D printed, and then uh, when they did the, the surgery, it looked exactly the same. In my mind, I thought it was a little strange because I would think that the liver may have moved a little bit. Uh, is, is it this exactly the same or... Does it make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, it does. Um, the the liver, um, the the uh, you know, think about the the I guess the the meats that you would buy at the deli counter, right? Um, liver is is um, 
it moves, but if it's surrounded by tissue, uh, it's going to, you know, it, it doesn't have anywhere to move. Uh, where the stomach, uh, the, the, you know, the, the intestines and whatnot, they're, they, they are designed to move around. Um, you know, the liver and kidneys are, are, are not rigid, uh, objects, but, but they pretty much maintain their shape. Understood. So let's see. Um, if one is going to have an invasive procedure to, let's say, remove a tumor, and sometimes the surgeons, it would be advantageous for them to get some practice on a 3D printed model before they go inside you or inside one of your loved ones, can one request the Mayo Clinic or a hospital, uh, if we pay a little bit more, to maybe have the surgeons practice on a 3D print before our loved one? Um, you know, uh, practicing on the on the 3D printed model doesn't really work because the the material properties are different. So they're they're really show and tell. They allow the surgeons to see what they wouldn't otherwise be able to see, but they really wind up being uh, uh, visual models rather than functional models. Um, but and so you know, one key point there is that the the Surgeons will come to, um, you know, we've, we, uh, Division of Engineering helped get the, 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 uh, pr the process started at Mayo Clinic, but ultimately handed it off to the Department of Radiology that has an anatomical modeling unit in the Department of Radiology. So they have the biomedical engineers working directly with the radiologists to create the, these planning models. Um, and so, uh, um, you know, they really are just, uh, um, you know, visual models for the uh, surgeons to plan. But, um, and for most uh, surgeries, the, the surgeons know exactly what they're going to see. You know, for a hip replacement, a knee, re you know, a typical uh, uh, anatomy, they know what they're going to see. They go in, they do the work. Um, as far as, you know, but, you know, a I think an awful lot of the anatomical models are used for uh, cancer treatment, for resecting tumors, um, and for uh, the surgeons to, especially where it's a very complex uh, tumor, they, where they have to avoid you know, critical anatomy, then they'll be able to, to look at it and, and actually plan their surgery you know, very exactly to, to figure out where they're, going to, to where they're going to enter, where they're going to cut, and how they're going to, to get the tumor they need. Understood. So in your description of 3D printing, you mentioned that it is also used for laboratory instruments. May I ask what kind? Well, so the Division of Engineering, we're a group of 70 people. Mayo Clinic is a company or an institution, rather, of 70,000 people. Um, we're 70 people within that, that organization. Uh, engineers, um, you know, medic mechanical engineers, uh, uh, software engineers, electrical engineers, uh, project managers, managers, machinists, technicians, and uh, we... Do we design and build one-of-a-kind medical devices and laboratory instruments for Mayo Clinic? We're doing one-of-a-kind, one-off. Uh, if if our volumes get over, you know, 10 to 30, we will automatically send it outside for somebody else to make it because our our skill, our focus is on the one-of-a-kind. And uh, uh, 
so the the laboratory instruments that we would uh, be using 3D printing for, it, 3D printing actually lends itself to what we do relatively well, better than it would for industry, because we're only making one or two. You know, if if uh, if you're making 10,000 of something, it makes sense to to buy a, uh, a an injection mold and 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 mold parts out of plastic, or to uh, uh, to to use higher uh, technology manufacturing. Uh, you know, more investment, uh, uh, higher investment levels of, of manufacturing. For us, we're doing one or two, so it makes sense to to, to do things as as quickly and and easily as possible. Well, recognizing we're within a hospital environment, and and uh, we certainly have to pay attention to uh, safety and quality. I see. I was going to ask you this, but maybe I can answer my own question, which was going to be, why would one want to build a one-of-a-kind lab instrument? And I think the answer is because so it's patient-specific, right? Well, so talking about laboratory instruments as opposed to, to surgical instruments or, or medical devices, for laboratory instruments, Mayo Clinic is a a, a huge uh, uh, research organization doing mostly transla translational medicine, less on the basic science and more how can we take things that have already been understood and translate them into medical practice? Um, one example of a, uh, one of my favorite examples of a laboratory instrument that the division made was a fly counter for counting fruit flies. The standard of practice was to count 10 or so fruit flies into a vial. And then uh, they would, uh, the, the idea here is that fruit flies, uh, they're looking at the, the neural function of the fruit flies and whether they're affected by um, chemotherapeutic agents or anesthetics. And uh, so it's a you know, laboratory work where they'll put the fruit flies in, they'll um, tap the vial down and, and see how quickly they fruit flies naturally climb, see how quickly they climb the side of the, of the, uh, the vial and with a stopwatch and, and measure their performance. Then they'll introduce the agent that they're interested in studying and do it again and see how much the fruit flies have been affected by the, the, the agent that was introduced. So very, very labor intensive. Um, we, they came to Division of Engineering and we designed a, a device, a, a system that could uh, count the fruit flies rather than d manually counting them. We were doing image recognition. So we take di digital imaging and then uh, run digital analysis to automatically count the fruit flies, we would uh, be able to, you know, instead of just doing one vial at a time, we could do 10 vials at a time and tap them all down, allow them to, the fruit flies to climb for a, a prescribed amount of time, and then take an, uh, another picture and, and count the fruit flies. Um, and instead of having 10 in a vial, we could have 50 in a vial. So we went from one lab tech being able to, to test 10 fruit flies at a time to one lab tech being able to uh, test 500 fruit flies at a time. So it was a, a, a tremendous uh, expansion of the, uh, of the you know, capabilities of that lab. Um, but ask how many institutions in the country need an automated fruit fly uh, counter there aren't that many. So that's why we, you know, why we do one of a kind laboratory instruments.
Okay, so thank you for the story. So this is happening, not the fruit fly, but the the two twins that were separated. This happened in 2006. So where are we now in terms of 3D printing? So we went from those first uh, conjoined twins. We didn't own a 3D printer at the time. We, uh, we, we wound up working with an imaging laboratory at, at Mayo to, to develop the, the STL models, which we then sent out to a, a lab up in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis-St. Paul area uh, to get uh, uh, prints done for us of, of you know, old-fashioned STL uh, uh, stereolithography. Uh, so fairly early on in, in the whole th- uh, evolution of 3D printing. Um, we very quickly realized that there was a place for us to own one, so we bought the, our first uh, 3D printer, which was a, a, a mid-priced, uh, at the time, I guess, mid-priced um, uh, fused filament fabrication uh, 3D printer, sort of the classic 3D printers you think of with the, the plastic uh, filament that gets uh, put through a, a hot nozzle and then laid down on a, on a platform. Um, we used that one for for a number of years and then expanded into um, a variety of other different uh, uh, 3D printers. So in the division of engineering, where we're not using it as much for anatomy anymore, but using it more for using the 3D printers more for for prototypes and for for working parts, um, we now have uh, two different or three different um, uh, fused filament fabrication versions. We have a, uh, uh, a multi-jet fusion uh, polymer um, nylon powder printer, and we have uh, a couple of different uh, um, uh, stereolithography systems um, of different sizes. And our, our uh, crowning achievement is we have a, uh, a, a se- selective laser melting uh, metal printer that we have uh, full of implant grade titanium that uh, uh, we're, we're working to, to use, uh, uh, working towards being able to do uh, to 3D print uh, patient specific implants for use in the clinic. This reminds me of maybe I watched a show on, on Netflix or something like that, that it was about the medical field and how when if one wants to get maybe a knee replacement, you only have like three sizes, small, medium, large, and a lot of patients don't fit that. And this would be revolutionary in the sense that you could replace the knee maybe with a specific uh, knee that fits the patient. Am I Am I right on that? Um, well, yes. Although, um, as far as knees go, there I think at this point there is a, a reasonable supply or a reasonable selection of knees. Um, and so, what where we live, as I said, we do one of a kind. And so, knees, new knee, you know, knee replacements, uh, hip replacements, shoulder replacements, um, even spinal. Um, uh, um, you know, uh, vertebral segments um, and 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 spinal plates. Um, all these things are um, commercial. They're they're readily available. They're being mass produced by um, some very very successful uh, implant manufacturers. And so there isn't that much room for for us to innovate on a on a one of a kind basis because chances are really good that the surgeon is going to be able to find a, a, a knee that will work for them, that a, a hip that will work for them, a shoulder that will work for them. 
Um, where we have found some success in, uh, you know, not in so much the patient-specific side, but in the prototyping side, is we've started working with uh, surgeons, uh, general, you know, a lot of them being orthopedic surgeons, that have ideas about better uh, uh, implants. Uh, so, um, Dr. Sperling is is uh, a, uh, a shoulder surgeon who has uh, multiple patents and has come up with uh, some great ideas for improving uh, the the implants that he's using in his practice. But as I said, we're one of a kind. We're not going to make large volumes. For, so his best way of of being able to buy the part that he wants that he designed is to work with us to reduce his his idea to to practice to to take it to prototype and then uh, take it into to cad cadaver uh, studies and then uh, patent it and license it to a medical device manufacturer so that they can commercialize it and then sell it to him. And, uh, and it, it winds up being win-win-win. Um, and we wind up uh, helping him, uh, you know, realize, you know, to, helping him improve the, the, the practice of medicine in, you know, in his uh, patient population. The, the one thing that I don't understand is if there are already companies that are very successful at providing the knees, the, the hips, uh, what are we, what are we using the titanium custom one-off parts for to replace what parts in the body? So the, the, the first uh, part we're looking at is uh, mandible uh, plating. So it's anytime there's, uh, you know, a lot of patient variation, you know, you think about the mandible, the jaw, um, everybody's jaw is shaped differently. Now, uh, Mayo has a, a fairly large practice, uh, a couple hundred cases a year, of uh, tumors in the jaw, in the mandible, that have to be resected, that have to be removed. And uh, the uh, right now, the Department of Radiology, the Anatomical Modeling Unit, will take images of, you know, will take the images, will create 3D models, they'll sit down with the surgeon and do pre-surgical, virtual surgical planning to decide where they're going to, to cut the bone to resect the tumor. They'll also do, they'll, they use the, uh, the fibula as a spare piece of bone, and so they will take a, a, a section of the patient's fibula, they're, they're the smaller, uh, narrower uh, uh, shin bone, and uh, and they will cut it to fit into the the uh, into the jaw, and then they'll use a plate to hold all of the pieces together, to hold the remaining jaw pieces together, and the and the the uh, the filler, the um, the replacement bone, uh, you know, holding everything together and in alignment. And it's really just a plating version. It's not providing long-term strength or structure, but uh, it's it's. Uh, um, it's allowing the, the, the bones to, to fuse and to grow and to heal uh, in proper alignment. Now, um, they can use um, uh, stock plates for that. And uh, sometimes if, if, if time is, is critical, they'll even take a, a, a case where they would prefer to use a, a patient-specific plate and they will actually bend it in the, they'll, they'll use a stock plate and they'll bend it in the operating room to fit. Well, that's not optimal. What's best is, you know, to get in, 
you know, designing in advance a, a custom plate. There are companies that do this, that, that we can go outside and purchase these patient-specific implants. Um, we believe that we can cut the, the timeline down so that it meets Mayo Clinic's needs. Um, Mayo Clinic is a de destination medical center, so people come here to Mayo Clinic to, or whether it's the, you know, the, the, the um, original Mayo Clinic in, in Rochester, Minnesota, or uh, one of the other destination centers in uh, Phoenix or Jacksonville, people travel to, to visit Mayo Clinic, and so the, the, the sort of the ideal, the, um, the perfect, the perfect case model of care is the patient shows up on Monday for some, some testing. Um, they see specialists on, on Monday or Tuesday. Um, they, they get diagnosed. Uh, a course of treatment is defined. And by Thursday or Friday, they're in surgery. Now, the current uh, standard of care for patient-specific implants, the timeline doesn't support that. We believe that we can take that within five days, the, the patient can be imaged. The uh, anatomical modeling unit in radiology can do their uh, uh, virtual surgical planning and can provide us with the, the requirements for what they need in an implant. We would design that implant, print it, post-process it, and uh, deliver it to sterilization uh, suitable for surgery on Friday. That's a great value proposition for, uh, for a patient. Quick yes. turnaround. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to take a quick moment to mention that the Being an Engineer podcast is brought to you by Pipeline Design and Engineering, located here in Phoenix, Arizona. Pipeline partners with medical and other device, uh, medical device engineering teams who need turnkey equipment such as cycle test machines, custom test fixtures, automation equipment, assembly jigs, inspection stations, and more. You can find us on the web at teampipeline.us. Now, I'm here with Sean McElligot. And I was telling Sean, asking before the interview started, if he could uh, tell me how to pronounce his name. And he told me that if you pronounce every letter on his name, you're good. And then I mentioned that I'm bilingual in Spanish, so it's, it's not an issue for me. So I wanted to talk to you about all the things that you do at Mayo Clinic. It says that you are involved in the Applied Computational Engineering Unit, the Biomechanical Development Unit, the Biomechanical Shop, the Engineering Additive Manufacturing Facility, and the Engineering Microfabrication Facility. It sounds like you're five people into one. <laughs> how Really, like how do you manage all these moving parts? Um, a, a key part of it is is having good people working with you. And so I'm director of the additive manufacturing facility, but we have a unit manager over the mechanical engineering unit and, uh, and the additive manufacturing, the, the staff for the additive manufacturing facility report to her. Um, and talking about doing patient specific implants. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, participating in that I'm the management sponsor, but we have a project manager who is is tasked with that, and we've got a team of of six or eight who are are actively working on that. So it really is a matter of of being able to to have great people working for you and and uh, you know empowering them to to do their work. 
Absolutely. Well, this is a perfect segue uh, because you mentioned that the Mayo Clinic is the destination for uh, a quick turnaround and some of the best treatment in the entire world. So I can imagine this is probably not a question that you get that you get often asked on podcasts. But if I'm in your shoes and I'm working my way up as an engineer and I apply to the Mayo Clinic and I get hired. What was the moment like when you got the call from the Mayo Clinic telling you that you were hired? It was great, although I'm not sure that I really realized how lucky I was and how how much I loved being at the Mayo Clinic, you know, right away. Because uh, you know, before I was at the Mayo Clinic, I was at uh, I was working in industry in the medical device industry as a medical device, you know, design engineer and project manager and manager, and uh, um, you know, in working in the device industry or in industry in general, I think you so often you get onto one product line, you you know that product line, you you. You know, you know, next year I'm going to be designing a smaller one of these or a bigger one of these or a, a dual version of this or a plastic or a titanium. And so um, it you can really see the writing on the wall, you know, years and years in the future where Mayo Clinic, as I said, we're doing one of a kind medical devices and laboratory instruments. And uh, and at any time with among our 70 people, we have 30 projects going on. And, uh, and so it really is a matter of, of being able to, to, uh, um, you know, not getting stuck in a rut, but being able to find, uh, you know, to help in many, many different ways. Um, another aspect of working at Mayo Clinic was that, again, being out in the medical device industry, it's a challenge to get input from doctors and it's a challenge to be able to, to see products in use. And, Working within the Mayo Clinic, we we are and we're we're, we're Mayo Clinic employees. We are already covered by the uh, informed consent that the patients sign. So if we're working with a surgeon and we need to observe a surgery, it's simply a matter of the surgeon calling up uh, nursing and say, you know, help this engineer get into the operating room for me. And and so it's it's really um, you know it's wonderful in that regard. And as far as getting you know, doctors' input. Um, you know, again, in you, you know, medical device industry, you go to conferences, you try to get time with doctors, you pay doc- doctors to talk to you. In in working at the Mayo Clinic, um, they're coming and asking for the, for our help, for you know, asking us to help them. And so, um, it it really is. Uh, you know, they they have to they have time. They, we're helping them get achieve what they want to achieve. When you mentioned that the engineers were already covered um, by the patient consent, what's the exact term? Uh, informed consent. Informed consent and how it removes all these barriers and allows the engineers to be present uh, in the in the surgery. Um, it reminds me of a core value here at Pipeline that's called governed by productivity and not bureaucracy. So it's like all that red tape is gone and you just get your hands, uh, you, can, you can go to work and get the information you need. So I think that's pretty cool. Uh, on the other side, let's say that there are engineers interested in helping the Mayo Clinic's vision. Uh, what are some things that the Mayo Clinic uh, may look for in the engineers that they hire? We, well, the key thing is, is uh, skill, expertise, knowledge in the, the discipline that they've been trained in. And so, um, 
for the mechanical engineers, I, I, I'm now uh, second line over the mechanical engineers. I was the first line mechanical engineering manager and, and hired mechanical engineers. Um, some of the mechanical engineers are, are actually biomedical engineers who have, uh, you know, who had a strong foundation in mechanical design. Um, but it, they're working at, you know, at Mayo Clinic, it, the ideal candidate um, is someone who has experience with or in, experience and interest in uh, uh, you know, the discipline, so mechanical design, electrical design, software design, but also has background and interest in um, the biology and, and, and medical side of things. And so, uh, so yeah, it's it's a um, a special person that that is perfect. But there again, you know, my my training, you know, as, as you said at the beginning, I'm I'm a mechanical engineer, and I have a master's degree in healthcare administration. Uh, neither one of those teaches you um, all the stuff, all the things that one needs to know to be a medical device design engineer. And so, some of it is is on the job, and and a lot of it is uh, working with people that know what they're doing. And uh, and then a lot of it is is also classes that and seminars and whatnot of you know learning. You know they didn't teach me about the characterization of steriliz you know, sterilization in college, um, and they didn't teach me about sterilization validation in college, and they didn't teach me about biocompatibility in college. But these are all all things that I've had to pick up along the way. And so you know we know that uh, the, the most important thing in hiring somebody is uh, you know somebody that 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 you know, is smart, adaptable, and that cares, um, you know, that, and, and willing to learn, um, you know, that, that it isn't, you know, we don't want people that, that feel most comfortable being in a rut. We want people who, uh, <laughs> who, who want to learn. Uh, that's, that's exciting. Um, let's see, you mentioned, let's see that a lot of our listeners are still <clears throat> engineers in college. A lot of them are mechanical who listen to our podcast. Uh, and you mentioned that school is not going to teach you everything, of course, that you need to know in order to maybe contribute at the Mayo Clinic. But there's time. Maybe let's say that there's a sophomore listening to this right now. What's something that that sophomore can do to start building that resume or that skill set so when they graduate, they're a more attractive applicant for the Mayo Clinic? Well, if there, and I guess not necessarily just the Mayo Clinic, but the medical device industry in general, I think it would apply to as well. Um, you know, take classes in uh, biomedical. So I, I would encourage you know, that mechanical engineer to continue and be, you know, graduate as a mechanical engineer. Um, and if they're interested in design, you know, focus on the, the design courses in in uh, in mechanical engineering, but also uh, take classes in biomedical engineering, whether it's um, just being able to, you know, just having some background in it or getting a minor or a dual major. Um, we've, we have uh, one of the engineers that, that uh, works, you know, in division of engineering has a bachelor's in uh, mechanical and a, a master's in biomedical. And so that's an option as well. But, uh, um, yeah, so I'd say get, get coursework. Um, I think, uh, if you're interested in biomedical, there are biomedical engineering clubs at a lot of, uh, or societies at, at a lot of, uh, universities. Get engaged with that. Um, as you're picking your design projects, uh, pick medical design projects if, if, if they're available, uh, so that you can, can get in, into that. 
look for internships, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, at the Mayo Clinic, we, we have uh, internships, but, uh, you know, we only have one or two uh, uh, mechanical engineering internships. So it's, it's uh, uh, very selective, but, um, you know, look towards uh, medical device companies and you know, just find whatever uh, uh, internships might, might align with, with, uh, um, you know, with your goal of, of being a medical device uh, design engineer. Perfect. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't asked you? I can't think of of, of anything. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've done a good job then. So, uh, how can people reach you? I'm I am on LinkedIn, and uh, so I, I guess I would say if you're interested in connecting with me, uh, um, let me know that you've. Uh, um, uh, you know that you heard me on the podcast, and uh, and express you know your interest. Uh, you know I I don't I, I have uh, financial advisors, so I don't need more financial advisors trying to connect with me on LinkedIn. But if you're interested in medical device, if you're interested in 3D printing, uh, if you're a, a, a college student in uh, mechanical engineering or any of the engineering disciplines, I'd certainly be happy to to be connected on LinkedIn. So you know, just send me a a, a LinkedIn request and and we can move from there what a beautiful outro all right sean well thank you so much for being on the show great thank you i'm aaron moncur founder of pipeline design and engineering if you liked what you heard today please share the episode to learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment custom fixtures and automated machines and with product design visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.